we know that the universe is expanding, cooling, and dark. When we look out in the depth of space, we think about all those points of light, all those distant stars and galaxies that light up the universe. But most of the matter in the universe is not luminous. Not only that, but most of the mass in the universe isn't even made of the same stuff we're made of. Normal particles, things like protons, neutrons, electrons, all the particles of the standard model cannot account for the majority of mass in the universe. For that, we need something called dark matter. But dark matter isn't just this glue that holds the cosmic web together. It also plays a role on galaxy scales and even smaller scales. And by looking at the universe in novel and impressive ways, we can learn to tease out those properties of dark matter that we cannot find in any other way. How do we do it and what do we learn? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. When we look out at the universe, there are many different scales of what we can look at. But one of the things that's unavoidable is that when light travels from a distant object to our eyes, it has to pass through all of the space and all of the matter contained within that space between that emitting source and us, the observer. And by looking at that, we can learn a whole lot, not just about the gas and the dust and the normal matter that's in between us, but the dark matter as well. And to help us understand how, I'm so pleased to welcome astrophysicist Dr. Anna Nirenberg of Jet Propulsion Laboratory to the program. Anna, welcome to the show. It's so cool to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I, I first became aware of your work this January when we met at the American Astronomical Society's annual meeting, and I learned about this new paper that you were just putting out, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. What you were able to do was leverage this idea that if we look out at the distant universe, we could learn about the dark matter in between where we are and the object we're observing. Can you tell us why looking out at a distant object could possibly teach us something about the dark matter that's present in the universe? So it's sort of interesting because the first thing you might think is, well, we see everything we see is because of light reflecting off of things, right? So the first reaction you might have might be, how could you not learn about everything in between? Like, how could you not learn about dark matter? And one of the weirdest things about dark matter that I think is the hardest for people to wrap their heads around is that it doesn't interact at all with light. Light travels straight through it. Doesn't that, doesn't that mean dark matter is a terrible name for it? Because dark, we think of as dark something that absorbs light. If you absorb and don't emit light, that's what makes you dark. But this is, this is really invisible matter, isn't it? This exactly. is really something with mass that light just says, okay, well, you're there, and <laughs> later, dude. Yep, that's right. Uh, yeah, so dark in this context really just means mysterious. It's just that connotation. It's not dark as in it's blocking anything. 
So that makes it even weirder than it first might sound that somehow we're using the way the light travels through space to see dark matter. But the effect we use is something called um, gravitational lensing. So one of the really cool things uh, that was predicted and observed in general relativity, which is the one of the major contributions Einstein made to science, is that matter bends space-time, which is another thing that's really hard to kind of just visualize. But what you could think about is that if you have a really, really massive object, then instead of a straight line being the best way to walk next to it, it would actually be a curved line becomes the optimum path. So light always travels on the fastest possible, most direct route. And so if you have a really massive object, it light actually bends around that really massive object. And so even if you can't see the massive object at all, if it was, for instance, completely made of dark matter, what you would see is the light having a funny path that isn't the same as what you would have expected if the dark matter wasn't there. So the dark matter isn't blocking the light. It's actually just changing the way space is shaped. And so then the light moves around it. Well, let's let's think about how to visualize this, um, because I think I think that's a challenge for a lot of people when they think about dark matter and the curvature of space time. You know, you can you can point to like a famous explanation like uh, I always like John Wheeler's explanation of matter tells space how to curve and space tells matter and energy how to move. And I thought like, well, that's a that's a nice simple explanation, but how do you picture it? And the best picture I've come up with, I used to like the picture about having like a two-dimensional bedsheet with a mass on it that yes. that gets deformed, but then people have that misconception about, okay, well then what's causing the deformation and what about the third dimension? So I was like, okay, okay, we can do better than that. What if we looked at it as like this 3D grid, just a grid of X, Y, and Z lines where you imagine empty space is just these empty grid lines. And then when you have a mass, it's sort of like if you imagine this grid connected by strings with knots in them. If I went and I took a big fistful of strings, just I put my hands in there and I closed my fist, all of those strings, all of those lines, they would deform. The closer you were to my fist, the more deformed you'd be. And the further away from my fist you were, the less deformed it would be, but it would still be deformed. You'd still have your grid deformed. And then the light passes through that grid. That's how space is bent. I don't know if you find that a useful visualization, but but I think it helps people who think in three dimensions to sort of understand what's happening is it's like gravity. Gravitation is sucking space inwards in some fashion so that if matter passes through like an orbiting planet or even if light passes through, it can get bent. Now, you mentioned you mentioned strong gravitational lensing, and that's a special situation where you have like a mass that's pretty much directly in between you and 
and the object you're looking at. So when you have strong lensing, it's like space is so contorted and pulls things in so thoroughly that you can have light arrive from multiple different paths in multiple different directions in arcs, maybe even in rings or horseshoe shapes that stretch, distort, and magnify that background light. That is, yeah, I really like your description of the grid of strings. I think that's good, and I think that's pretty easy to visualize and a really good description of what's happening. And like you said, this so that's gravitational lensing, and then strong gravitational lensing is exactly what you just said. It's multiple images. Um, everyone who can should just go look up a picture of a gravitational lens online uh, because they're pretty unbelievable how cool they are. I'll make sure to put one up online as the uh, feature image for the podcast as well. So people are like, that's a strong gravitational lens. And I think even, I think everyone, it's just one of the coolest things to study because they're so beautiful and weird. (laughs) No, and that, and that's fantastic. But for me, you know, because I, I don't do the same uh, observational work that you do. I, I, I only did one observational project ever. And, uh, after I did it, my supervisor said to me, he's like, but you still want to do theory, right? And I was like, oh, very much yes. And that was that was my career. Uh, but when I think about strong gravitational lensing, I look at this as this is not just a fantastic phenomenon that gets predicted by Einstein that can teach us like about this individual system at play. I think about it as a tool that we can use to learn about the universe because sure, you're going to have your large dark matter halo, right? You're going to have, whenever you have a mass there, you're going to have the normal matter that falls to the center because it it has elastic collisions, because it loses momentum and angular momentum when it collides. So the normal matter is going to sink to the center in clumps. But the dark matter is going to remain largely diffuse in this massive halo, except for the fact that that's only the largest scale structure for dark matter. Whatever dark matter is, it should actually be making gravitational structures, be making these collapsed structures on a variety of scales, on small scales, mid-sized scales, and large scales that sort of all get superimposed on top of one another the same way that, like, you know, you can look at a human body and say, okay, the human body is made up of organs, which are made up of cells, which are made up of molecules, which are made up of atoms, which are made up of subatomic particles. Like, we're all of those things. Well, a big, massive clump of matter in the universe, the ones that do the best job of creating strong gravitational lenses, they have not only that large, massive overall structure to them, but they should have substructures within them too, right? That's correct. And um, what's really cool is the number of those substructures. So the amount of smaller structures that are gravitationally bound to the main structure uh, depend on the particle properties of dark matter. So we think of Dark matter, the typical thing we think of with dark matter is that it's some kind of a particle. So something the size of a proton or an electron, something tiny, tiny. But depending on exactly how it interacts with itself and its surrounding material, that affects how much really large scale structure it forms. And I'm, 
Um, even on the scale, so we have our the huge structure where the gal- the main galaxy forms, but then even a smaller dark matter structure is, you know, still much, much, much bigger than our solar system, for example. And that whole thing, the shape of it, the number of them that exist is affected by what kind of physics goes into that particle. Yeah, I think I think the best word that I've ever heard to describe what dark matter halos are like is fluffy. And that's because they they're not like super dense in the center and then it gets very diffuse on the way out. It's this extremely gradual thing that dark matter is really like it's really diffuse like a cloud. If you were to take for example all of the dark matter that's present in the solar system and you were to draw a massive massive sphere around say the entire Kuiper belt that just encompassed everything encompassed all the Kuiper belt objects Pluto Neptune all the planets the comets the asteroids um, and say okay we're taking all of this stuff and we're gonna add up all of the dark matter within there how much mass is all of the dark matter contained within the solar system and it's something like the mass of like the 10th biggest asteroid like all in that massive volume in the solar system in the galaxy there's just not a lot of dark matter there so when you're talking about this dark matter substructure you're talking about things that are actually like actually small amounts of mass on pretty large physical scales but it's only because we're looking at the universe on much larger scales than that we're looking at the universe on scales of like entire galaxies um, and we're looking at entire galaxies as they are you know hundreds of millions or even billions of light years away that that what we're seeing is this very narrow scale but it's actually this very large structure that's right. Um, and so I think I think it's also maybe helpful to mention at this point that so you have your main galaxy, like in our example, it would be the Milky Way. And we think it it's surrounded by one of these very low density, fluffy halos. That's the, kind of the standard theory. Although, of course, you know, we haven't actually detected dark matters. So um, that's still a theory well but but we haven't directly detected dark matter right but you're you're telling us that yeah we haven't directly detected it which means we don't know if it's a particle we don't know what particle properties it has but this work that you're doing it gives us a way that if dark matter is a particle we can point to different signals that would show up in the observations if it was this kind of particle versus that kind of particle versus a particle with this property or that property. Exactly. And so I just wanted to say um, the Milky Way lives in a big halo. Um, But then there are also smaller galaxies that we know about that you can actually see by eye in the southern hemisphere, the Magellanic Clouds. And those little galaxies are living in their own smaller dark matter halos that are gravitationally bound to the Milky Way. So that's an example of some of these lower mass structures that you can actually detect just because they have stars in them. So you can look out and you see these condensed structures and you can see the way the stars are orbiting in those smaller structures and you know that those must be in their own dark matter halos. So one way to try and learn about the particle properties of dark matter is just by looking and trying to find these small galaxies. 
But there's an issue, which is that as the dark matter halos get smaller and smaller, they don't have as much gravity, they can't hold as much gas in and form enough stars that you can see them. So there could potentially be a lot of these self-gravitating dark matter structures that don't have any stars or gas in them. And so that leads us to why gravitational lensing is a powerful way to learn about dark matter. Yeah, I I think one of my favorite examples is you brought up the Magellanic Clouds, and they're fantastic examples because you can see them with the naked eye. They've been known since ancient times, although they've only been known to Europeans since around the time of Magellan because Europeans didn't spend a lot of time in the Southern Hemisphere for some reason, being Europeans <laughs> and all. Um, but when you look at them, you know, you say, oh, these are bright things, and they are, but they're not bright because they're super big and massive. They're they're both in the top 10 of galaxies in the local group in terms of size and brightness. I think the Large Magellanic Cloud might actually be number four, but they're so close to us. The Milky Way is about 100,000 light years in diameter, and we're about halfway from the edge to the center um, where we are in our position with the sun. The large and small Magellanic clouds are both under 200,000 light years away. So they're very close to our galaxy, but the Milky Way's dark matter halo is expected to go out for more than a million light years in all directions. So you have these relatively large clumps in terms of the Magellanic Clouds with their own dark matter halos that are on top of it. And then within the Milky Way, we have even smaller structures. We have smaller galaxies that have already been absorbed, dwarf galaxies that have been tidally disrupted. We have, my favorite example is this was only discovered um, in the last 10 years or so, we have this galaxy called Segway 1, which has only about a thousand stars in it, maybe maybe 600 to a thousand stars in it. And it's close by. It's within it's within the halo of the Milky Way for sure. Um, but when you measure the stars within it, you see there's no gas, there's no dust, and the total mass of the stars that are there are, you know, it's less than 1,000 solar masses. Like, there are around 1,000 stars in there, but the average star is much less massive than our sun is. And then you go and look at how these stars are moving, and you say, okay, well, based on how the stars are moving and the fact that this is a gravitationally bound object, how much total mass has to be in this galaxy? And the answer is about 600,000 solar masses worth of matter. So we have less than 1,000 solar masses worth of matter, of normal matter in there, and we have over 600,000 solar masses needed to hold this together. What could be causing that? That has to be dark matter. But if this galaxy were literally any farther away, like if it wasn't right in our own backyard, it would be too faint for us to see and tease out. We would never be able to see the stars in there. But thanks to your technique of strong gravitational lensing, we can actually detect the influence of its mass. Yeah, so that's what's really cool. And uh, I, I feel like I need to give credit. This method has been around, proposed for detecting these small structures, has been around for over 20 years now. Um, 
So there's a few different things that have made it possible to use this method now to actually place a really interesting constraint on the number of these small structures. You talked about we can use this dark matter technique. We can use this technique of strong lensing with respect to dark matter to constrain what we said were particle properties of dark yes. matter. So maybe we should talk about what different models of dark matter would imply for these different properties that we would expect to observe. So if I were to look at, you know, the same object in the sky and gravitational lensing is occurring, what would I see differently based on certain different models of dark matter? What would my observations be sensitive to in terms of the properties of dark matter? Yes. So I think that's what's really exciting is this method is sensitive to a few different ways in which you could vary your dark matter model. So with gravitational lensing, what you're sensitive to is the total mass of an object, but also to some extent the shape of the mass profile. So whether you have a steeper more mass concentrated in the center of your dark matter structure or if it's fluffier. So gravitational lensing can tell me about those two things especially. Um, so some different particle things that affect those two observables are one of the main ones that we looked at in our recent paper. One of the papers was led by graduate student Daniel Gelman at UCLA is we looked at what happens if the mass of the dark matter particle is lighter. So that has an interesting effect. What that means is that, okay, and I should say lighter than a baseline dark matter particle, which has a mass about a thousand times the mass of a proton. And so when you're when you're talking about light or heavy, right, that's that's yes. sort of model independent in a lot of ways. What you're really able to constrain with this is what was the temperature of dark matter, which really means how fast were these dark matter particles moving if at some point they started out like everything else in the hot Big Bang did, right? If they started out moving fast, moving close to the speed of light when they had a lot of energy. So when you're talking about we're trying to look at the mass of these dark matter particles, we're using mass as a proxy for determining like, okay, if they started out zipping around the universe real fast and then they cooled, what sorts of structure would they form if they were moving, you know, at this speed at this specific time, assuming that faster things, things will move faster if they're smaller in mass, but have the same amount of kinetic energy. That's that's right. Uh, so there's a really big, a lot of different ideas out there for what dark matter could be. And a lot of those ideas are tied to different problems in particle physics, for instance, um, neutrino masses, these sorts of things. So those lead to different predictions, which lead to different particle masses. And again, like you said, I don't actually observe the particle mass. But uh, one of the effects of having a less massive particle is that the speed it's generated with is higher for a less massive particle. So what that means is that if you imagine like a rocket trying to leave Earth, if it's not going fast enough, it just gets stuck. And the same thing happens early in the universe with structure formation. If your particle is going really slowly, it can get stuck 
on a less massive thing than if it's going really quickly and then it can zip through little perturbations. So effectively, if the quote unquote temperature of these low mass particles is high, then uh, you erase a lot of structure on smaller scales because those small scale things don't have enough gravity to trap the particles. So you start with your particle theory that has answers some question we have that's in maybe coming from the particle accelerators or observations from any number of things. And that leads for you to predict some kind of a theoretical particle. And that theoretical particle could have a range of masses. And as you vary the masses of that theoretical particle, it affects how much small scale structure you will have at present day. So that's one range of models that we can test. We can say, well, it has to, if it's this sort of a model, it, the particle has to be more massive than this or because we see this much small scale structure with gravitational lensing. The other thing we can look at is how much the dark matter particles interact with themselves. So they can't interact very much with themselves. Otherwise, they would form condensed structures like the galaxies we see. Uh, but they could interact a little bit with themselves once in a while. And that would lead to the shape of the structures themselves, the small little dark matter structures themselves being less clumpy, being less dense in the center. That would also be something we could test. So those are sort of two different things, where the interaction between the dark matter particles and also the mass or the velocity that they're generated with at early times. That's kind of interesting. So if I if I go to take these two things that you've said, I'm I'm going to put some pictures out there and you can tell me how these pictures jibe with your with with your picture in your head. Um so I'm going to imagine that the early universe comes along and anything that it interacts with it's going to give energy to. Um any particle interactions that occur are going to transfer energy. So I imagine the universe is coming along like a uh, like a Mack truck. It's coming along, it's like just a big truck driving down the highway, lot of kinetic energy, some amount of mass to it. And then it's going to run into stuff. If it runs into like a little ball, right, just I've got a little ball on the highway, that ball is going to go flying when the truck hits it. That ball is going to go off moving faster than the truck that hit it is even moving, right? That truck's going to hit the ball and the ball's going to go flying really fast and really far because it's low in mass. On the other hand, if I make the ball as massive as the truck is, then the truck's going to hit the ball and the ball will go off maybe with the same speed that the truck came in with, but but it's not going to go faster than the truck. It's going to, like, the more massive I make this, the slower the ball's going to go off. And if I make the ball the size of, like, a mountain and I crash the truck into it, that ball is barely going to move at all. And I sort of think of this as the difference between what we call hot dark matter, which would be the small ball that moves very fast at early times, or warm dark matter, which is the ball that moves at an intermediate speed at early times, or cold dark matter, which is always moving slowly, even at early times. And then you're adding in this other thing of, well, you never told me how these balls interact with each other. Are they elastic balls? Are they sticky balls? Are they invisible balls that just pass right through each other? And it sounds like this technique of saying, okay, we have 
all these examples of different balls of different sizes and masses because they're different clumps of balls together. Um, when we look at them with this strong lensing, when we look at the background light that we observe and how that background light gets bent, you're going to see different particular details in your observations if dark matter is cold or warm or hot. And you're going to see different details if the balls are bouncy or sticky or invisible. How does that work? So I totally agree with the end part where you're saying how the different ball shapes affect the different observables with lensing. I'm afraid that your analogy with the balls hitting the truck may be confusing to some people because the balls are only interacting with the universe gravitationally they're not having an impact like i would think of with a something bouncing off of a truck that's fair that's fair like that's i know what i'm saying is one specific model of a wimp that interacts at early times and then decouples and that's not a universal model i might think more about something like um well, honestly, I do think something like a rocket ship going by the Earth is a really good analogy. Um, if you can imagine the rocket ship going super, super fast, if I'm imagining what I see in the early universe. So what I see in the early universe is you start out, you have some particles that are just created with some range of velocities, uh, so a range of speeds. And they're also, they have random positions. And so when you start out early on in the universe, these kind of random quantum fluctuations, we call them, you have some areas that are a little denser and some areas that are a little less dense. And those are the seeds. Those variations are the seeds from which all structure grows in the universe. So just little blips, little one particle move this way, one particle move that way, and all of a sudden you happen to have a little area that's a little denser. So if you imagine that being the, the starting point from which all structure forms. Okay, so now you have these dark matter particles. So they're moving around. And let's say you have a particle that's moving really quickly or through this kind of these low variations in density, right? You have some areas that are denser and some areas that are less dense. And you have some particle that was generated with a high speed dipping along. It's going to have a high velocity that's going to be too high to be captured by those little clumps. So just like a rocket ship that's going too fast to be orbiting the Earth, it leaves the Earth's orbital field. It would be just like that. On the other hand, if your particle is going along slowly, it's generated more massive, and then the trade-off is it has less velocity, then it's sort of like a rocket ship that's going too slowly, and it just comes crashing down to Earth. It becomes gravitationally bound to that little clump it bumped into. So that would be the picture I would try for how these velocities map onto whether or not you form these smaller structures. If you're going slower, it's easier to catch you if even if you have less mass because your escape velocity is lower. So I, I like that picture. So you're saying it's like uh, it's like imagining you have things that are either zipping around fast or zipping around at a medium speed or zipping around at a slow speed. And if you have 
a large, massive gravitational structure, it's easier to capture a faster moving thing. But if you only have a small mass structure, it can only capture a slow enough moving thing. So it sounds like what you're saying is because the universe expands and because as the universe expands, things wind up moving slower through it as the universe expands and things lose kinetic energy due to the universe's expansion. Um, a universe that starts off with faster moving particles, with hotter dark matter particles, is going to take longer to form structure to have those dark matter particles fall into the structure than a universe where dark matter is born cold at early times and then it's easier to build up these clumpier and clumpier structures at early times. That's absolutely true. So yeah, it affects also the shape of the halos they the in the faster case the warmer case the halos took longer to form so they look a little different because of that and also there just isn't as much clumpy structure because early early on when the slower particles were getting trapped the faster particles were just ignoring them and here i'm talking about two different universes um yeah, possibilities. Right, because we're just imagining we don't know what dark matter is just like right now. Like we can't just say like, oh, yeah, we live in a universe where dark matter moves at this speed and has this temperature and is this mass. If we knew that, we wouldn't have to imagine all these different universes. So it sounds like a key part of this type of work is not just the observational part where you have to go and say, okay, we're going to look at these lenses in details and see what the masses are. It sounds like you have to match those up with simulations of, okay, in a universe where dark matter has these properties, this is the type of strong lensing signals we'd expect to get out. Versus in a universe where dark matter had these other properties, we would have to get these other signals out. And so it sounds like this is really a case where on the one hand, you have the theoretical motivation for dark matter, and then you use that and you simulate the universe with these particular dark matter properties and ask yourself, what sort of lensing signals would I get out under these different conditions? And only then do you go out and actually make these measurements and say, okay, what kind of universe do we live in? That's absolutely right. And so each step in this that I've described is a whole area of expertise and a separate researcher leading it. So you have the people who first notice something weird at the particle accelerator and come up with a theory to maybe predict that. Uh, then they're making the prediction for dark matter. And then you have a separate person who's taking that prediction for the kind of particles and trying to simulate a universe with that picture. And then in our case, we have another person that was Daniel Gilman, who is taking that prediction for what the universe looks like, and then asking specifically, what does a gravitational lens look like if it lives in this universe or that universe? So I'm, the number, the uh, amount of specialization that goes into each step and the amount of human hours and thought that take you from that initial thing to trying to make a prediction for an observable is a huge, uh, it's really cool. It's a lot of collaboration. Yeah, I know we've presented this as like just a, a complete story of, oh, here's how you do all of these things. 
as though this were something like one person could do in like the half hour we've been talking so far. <laughs> and and I I think that's maybe uh that's maybe oversimplifying things by many orders of magnitude. You're you're really talking about the research careers of, you know, hundreds of people who've contributed yeah. to bring us to this level of understanding at this point in time. That's right. Absolutely. So when we take a look at what these simulations predict, right, you're saying, okay, we're going to use these results and say, if a universe has dark matter that's hot, that things don't fall in until late times, and that there's a, a cutoff to the scale of structures that we form at a certain time, um, we're basically going to get a strong lensing signal where some of those uh, structures that would be um, on the smallest scales, that would be these lowest mass structures, I would say they would show up as washed out. And so they wouldn't have a strong contribution to the physical type of lensing signal we actually observe. Whereas if dark matter is colder, things can start forming these small scale structures at very early times. And so you expect there are going to be greater numbers and larger magnitudes of these smaller scale structures that we observe that will have their associated effect on gravitational lensing signals. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So for these w warmer dark matter models where the particles are moving more quickly, uh, you have less small scale structures. So low mass things just don't form at all. And so as a result, when you look at your gravitational lenses, uh, you don't get a contribution from these really small things. When I, when I was in uh, grad school, we called this uh, 4S, which was small-scale structure suppression. I don't think that has <laughs> caught on, but... No, that needs to catch on. I like it. <laughs> Uh, but this is also relevant for that second part you talked about to constrain the interactions between dark matter particles, isn't it? Yeah, so... It if regardless of whether your dark matter is warm or cold, if it's bumping into itself and feeling itself via some other force, not necessarily a force we know about yet, but it could be some dark sector force, then that would also affect the shape of the halos. So one model is called self-interacting dark matter. And there's a whole range of different ways we predict that dark matter could possibly interact with itself and still match everything else we know about it. Um, and that could be range in how big the probability is that a given dark matter particle interacts with another one. And these sorts of interactions also affect the shape of these structures that form. When you did uh, the work you did with Daniel, um, one of the cool things that I noticed you used was you were using incredibly precisely aligned gravitational lenses. There is a special configuration that exists in a gravitational lens that um, surprised a lot of people when it was seen for the first time called an Einstein cross. And this is where you get a very specific alignment of you have a large intervening mass between you and a light source, but it's almost perfectly aligned right down the line of sight where it goes you, distant mass, 
distant light source in the background. If the alignment were absolutely perfect, you would get a ring. You'd get a phenomenon known as an Einstein ring. But if it's just off by a little bit in a particular way, you wind up with a cross configuration where you get four independent images of that background galaxy, and we call that a quadruple lens. Now, there's also examples where things are less lined up and you get double lenses, but sometimes you get multiple double lenses along the same line of sight. So when you did this research, you went and you needed to seek out very specifically aligned systems. And there are only a few tools uh, in all of human creation that are capable of making these measurements to the precisions you need. So what systems did you go out and measure and how did you go and measure it? So yeah, we needed to have the systems that have four copies of the background source. And we needed that because for our observation, the light is being bent by both the main large dark matter distribution that we know is there. That's the main gravitational lens, like the big halo around the lens galaxy. So that's there, but then there's also these small clumps around it that we're interested in measuring because that affects which of these dark matter particle models we're interested in testing. So we needed the four images because when you have four images, you get a really good constraint on what the large scale mass distribution is doing. So you have a lot, you can really pin down what you expect the signal to be in the absence of any small perturbations. So if you have those four images, you say, I think you look at their positions and that gives you a very robust prediction just based on general relativity of what the relative brightness is of those images should be if there were no perturbing structures and just one big smooth thing. If you only have two images, you don't get such a good constraint on the relative brightnesses you predict in the case of a smooth thing. So, um, I don't know if that makes sense. I think it, I think it makes sense to me. What you're basically saying is, look, if you have four separate images, what you're winding up getting is you're able to say, okay, I know what the background source actually is. I can reconstruct that. But with four separate images, I can successfully reconstruct the, the smooth part of the mass profile, I can basically look at it and say, look, I'm not going to worry about the small scale perturbations, fluctuations, the parts that will be sensitive to whether dark matter is hot, warm, cold, or self-interacting or non-self-interacting. Uh, but with four images, I get enough light with their particular brightnesses and shape distortions. Um, those four images give me enough coverage that I can do a very good job of reconstructing the smooth part of the mass. And then that's where that's where you build up that that extra like, okay, and now now that we've got the smooth part, we can say, well, based on the smooth part, these different add-ons, these different particular properties for dark matter would make differences in the details of this signal. And that's exactly. where and that's where you get really extra sensitive, right? That's exactly right. Um, so a key thing is that the in general relativity, the 
in a gravitational lens, the image positions depend on the depend on the overall large scale mass distribution, while the image brightnesses are much more sensitive to really small scale things. So that's another key thing going on here. Um, those image positions, like you said, are pinning down what you expect from that large scale, smooth component that doesn't depend on these different dark matter theories as much. And then the really small scale magnification, so the relative brightnesses are the ones that are become sensitive to small scale things which do depend on these different theories. And I think at this point, I do want to point out that the reason there's so much wiggle room in these different theories at the smallest scales, but not at the scale of the lens, is because at the scale of the lens, we have a lot of things that people have developed for a long time to help us test out dark matter theories. So by looking at how the stars orbit and galaxies, by looking how the gas orbits, and a lot of different things, we have a pretty decent constraint on how we think dark matter behaves on the scale of the lens as a whole. So that really large scale component, we don't have as many different kind of particle theories that would predict a lot of different things because we've measured that really well. These smaller scale things are in this regime, though, where like they have very few stars or no stars at all. And because of that, there's a lot more room for different creative particle models. And that's why we're trying to test that regime in particular. Right, because you can have, you know, people have say, um, they've come up with ideas where you can have a sterile neutrino, and maybe a sterile neutrino only has a mass of, you know, a maybe a few tenths of a percent of the electrons mass. And well, if you get a mass that that's small, um, that's going to change the type of small scale structure you produce. Or maybe you get something like an axion, which is really low mass, but is born cold because of how it's created. And so what do you get when you have a low mass thing that's born very cold because it's still subject to all those gravitational accelerations? Or then what if you have a WIMP particle? Well, that can come in with pretty much any range of masses as long as it doesn't interact too much via anything other than gravity. Um, it just sort of depends on how you make it and what mass you put into it. So that's not going to really affect that large scale halo shape, but it will affect the types of, I don't know what to call them, sub clumps that you get yeah, in there. Sub halos. Yeah. Or substructures. Yeah. That's that's right. Um, that's and it's by design because we can we can do tests on larger scales that you know really shrink the amount of options you have in terms of how the particles can be behaving. But on these small scales, we could have huge differences in the number of structures because until now it's been really hard to measure these things because they're pretty much invisible these small structures yeah when i was uh so this is 15 years ago but when i was a grad student right the only constraint that was of any meaning that we had on these small scale structures came from what we called the lyman alpha forest so this is when you look out at some really distant galaxy um you're going to see there are absorption features in that distant galaxy or quasars from all of the different clumps of normal matter that are in between you and that cluster. And if dark matter is hot, which means it's moving close to the speed of light at early times, then when you try to clump together to form masses 
early on, especially small-scale masses, uh, that fast-moving dark matter is going to free-stream out of it, which means it's going to wash out that structure. So that was really the only meaningful constraint that we had for a long time to say, okay, well, if dark matter is hot, it can be no hotter than this particular amount. And as far as I was aware, your work with the quadruply lens systems, that was the first constraint that I was aware of from this strong lensing method. And immediately it was on par with the very best modern constraints from all of the small scale structure Lyman Alpha work that had been done forever. Yeah, I think so. I there's some different methods of approaches to gravitational lensing. Uh, this is the first one using these four point sources that has provided this really powerful constraint. So I, I we were really thrilled with how powerful our constraint was. Now, you got this constraint uh, from some very excellent data. And in fact, when you needed this data, uh, you had to put in a proposal to use Hubble time. Um, and I don't think, I, first off, that must have been very exciting for you to be like, I am going to propose to use Hubble time because that is the most sought after observing time on, on all of Earth. For all of humans on Earth, uh, everyone wants to use Hubble, but not everyone gets to. No. Can you I, can you tell us what it's like to go through that process to to get actual observing time on the Hubble Space Telescope? It's like the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I so one of the key things is this field has been really limited by the number of these small these kind of systems, these four image point source systems that could be used for this method and I had an idea of a way of using Hubble that would let us study a lot more systems than had been previously possible. Um, so I remember I was a grad student and I was at this conference and I was talking to some people and all of a sudden I had this idea like in the middle of a conversation and they kind of just like walked away. I was like, I need to go somewhere. And I went and ran the Hubble has an exposure time calculator tool, so you can try and you can put in a planned observation and see how long you think it would take. And I remember I ran it in through the exposure time calculator, and it was like it was totally feasible. And I was like, that was really cool. And I so then I talked to my advisor, and I was like, what about this idea? And he he was on board. So that I mean, just having that idea just pop in your head already is like an amazing feeling. It's like really cool. Um, so then you write the proposal, you get so excited about it when you're writing it because you know, you, you gotta say like, this is going to be the greatest thing to ever happen to science. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I'm just a grad student and the Hubble Space Telescope is typically oversubscribed by a factor of 10, 10 to one. So 10 for every 10 proposals, one gets accepted. Um, so, you know, realistically you got to try a few times usually, but I got lucky and my proposal got accepted the first the first time around which uh that was an unbelievable feeling too i had to reread the email a few times to make sure make sure i actually did get my proposal accepted that that is amazing like that 
that that is like that's that's like unheard of winning the lottery that's like basically saying like okay um i god this is gonna date me but you're like okay i'm pedro you're gonna vote for me all your dreams are going to come true and then you discovered that you kept all of those promises they did vote for you (laughs) and all of your wildest dreams did come true (laughs) that's what it was like they voted for pedro except for yeah Anyway, <laughs> except you were Pedro and you won and and you got all this beautiful data and you got a fantastic constraint out of it. You wind up you wound up for this study. You observed eight different quadruple lens systems. Was that right? We studied eight in this paper that Daniel just released. Um, but I actually got my data in two different through two different proposal cycles. So um I actually only received some of the data just this winter after we'd already published our paper. So I'm still working on analyzing the full sample. Um, But we went ahead and analyzed the first bit in our paper that came out at the AAS meeting. Well, that's really exciting. Does that mean you're going to have in... I'll say in in pretty short order, which is to say once like you have the data in hand, you just need to finish the analysis of it. Does that mean that you expect your constraints to improve even over what you presented just a few months ago once you have the full sample analyzed? Yeah, we will have about twice as many systems in our final paper. So I'm really excited about that. And uh So that'll be, you know, we will get analyzing those as soon as possible. And we've put in for another bunch of lenses to be observed. So what's been happening, which is really cool, is thanks to these new surveys in the Southern Hemisphere, we have the Dark Energy Survey. And then there's also another survey called PanStars. These are ground-based surveys of the entire sky. And a lot of people have been working on finding these lenses. And so in the last few years, coincident with me starting to do this whole program, we found 20 or 30 new lenses I can do this with. So I'm really optimistic. I'm hoping that we get the Hubble time to kind of do the rest of these systems now. And that we think we're going to get a really tight constraint on dark matter. But even in the short term, I have these additional eight systems or so, which I'm in the process of analyzing. That's really exciting, not only for, you know, where you are right now, which is tremendously exciting, but looking ahead to the future. You know, you talk about doing something with uh, with telescopes like PanStars, and that just makes me salivate looking ahead to things like the LSST at Vera Rubin Observatory, which is basically like the... It's like the Andre the Giant version of Pan Stars. Like yes. this is this is something that has sort of the same scanning power as Pan Stars, but instead of using a telescope like the size of my arm in diameter, you're using one that's like the size of like um, you know, my house in diameter. Yeah, it's Uh, One of the really cool things about the particular method I'm using is that it is very applicable to the kinds of things that will be found by the Vera Rubin Observatory. So, and they're forecast to be thousands of these lenses discovered in that data. So it's so powerful that we're going to go from the tens of systems we have now to hundreds and hundreds and these will be fainter systems that will be a little harder to study, 
But thanks to the new observatories that will be going on the ground, like the 30-meter telescope uh, that they're hoping to build on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, they'll be able to follow up these fainter systems with my method. Also with things like the next generation space telescopes, like James Webb Space Telescope, WFIRST, and even further into the future, the kind of next, next generation. All of these things we can study, these hundreds and hundreds of systems we're going to be finding in the next decade with LSST. And so even though we've already shown that we already have a competitive, if not the best constraint on the number of these small scale structures that form in the universe, um, moving forward, I think our method is going to be really, really powerful. You know, it's really rare that you can get something so powerful with such a small sample. Like you were able to place these amazing constraints on the temperature of dark matter and the interaction strength of dark matter with just eight systems. And typically, when you go to larger and larger numbers of statistics, uh, things scale as the square root of the number of your data points. So if you can go from eight systems to 800 systems, you can legitimately expect, I would think, that you'd be able to legitimately expect something that was at least 10 times better than what you're getting now. And that, like, when you can improve something by an order of magnitude, like, that's a phenomenal, that's a phenomenally powerful tool. That's right. And it's exciting to have a method which has so much room for growth. You know, at this stage in my career as a postdoc now, um, that I can look forward to the future and think about, okay, you know, tell me your dark matter models and I can think about how I can test them because I'm going to have all this data. And so we can also think about testing different kinds of things that might depend more on the type of system or, you know, things that are more subtle that you just can't test with eight systems. So I'm just, I really love that I have all of this potential for the future too. I think it's fantastic, too, because, I mean, for me, the most exciting thing is you don't know what you're going to find. Like, it's very easy to to take the pessimistic approach and say, like, oh, yeah, dark matter doesn't interact and it's super cold. And all you're going to do is you're going to constrain how much it doesn't interact and how unbelievably not hot dark matter is. And for me, first off even if those are the only things you uh, accomplish with this analysis, those are amazing constraints to have. But this is also a probe of particles in a way that we've never probed the universe before. You don't know what you're going to find unless you look. People have thrown out ideas that maybe dark matter is just a few kiloelectron volts in terms of a particle, or maybe it's less than a mega electron volt in terms of a particle, or maybe even it's a few mega electron volts. You might be getting sensitive with the statistics we're going to be seeing later in the 2020s and especially in the 2030s. Um, you might get sensitive enough that you might actually find the first pieces of evidence that tell us not only what particle properties dark matter doesn't have, but you might be the first to find what particle properties it does have. The only reason we even think there's something like dark matter or that dark matter might exist is because of astrophysical observations. So the universe has provided this amazing kind of particle experiment for us, right? 
and uh, it's fundamental physics that you're observing in the universe scale. So like you said, let's say I don't see anything that indicates, let's say I what I observe with the lensing indicates that uh, dark matter is consistent with something that forms structure down to really small scales. There's no way I could have ever come up with that, probably based on ground-based observations. There are a lot of detector experiments which haven't yet detected anything. It's possible that one day they might see something. But if my experiment, you know, says absolutely the astrophysical dark matter we see has to form structures on these scales, that still is providing insight into the universe that we would have never had. The other important thing I think is that at some point, if I really am detecting a lot of these dark matter halos that are forming on really small scales, uh, then it, because we don't see a lot of really, really small galaxies around the Milky Way, we only see a few hundred, by, by inference, you would have to determine that there would be a lot of dark matter halos that don't have any stars in them. And that would mean I would be detecting self-gravitating structures made up of only dark matter, which would be pretty definitive proof that dark matter does exist and it's not some other theory like modified Newtonian gravity. So that's another milestone that I'm really excited about in this approach. It would be proving the existence of these dark, low-mass halos Yeah, definitively. I, I think that's really exciting because you mentioned that you're detecting, okay, you're detecting the dark matter distribution by looking at the object that's doing the lensing. And you mentioned you're also detecting the dark matter substructure from the object that you're observing and the dark matter substructure it has. But there's a third part to that as well. It's not just the dark matter and how it's distributed in the lens and in the source. It's also the cumulative dark matter and how that dark matter is distributed between you and what you're observing. It's everything along the line of sight added up. It's dominated by those two effects, but you're seeing everything from intervening clumps of matter that might not have a visual signature that are in between them to the dark matter structure and substructure within our own Milky Way and local group. Because as you look out, all of it is playing a role. And that's something that I don't think I've really considered before is that this even applies, especially if you get enough sources and enough sky coverage, you can actually start to see what about these dark matter clumps that exist right here in our own galaxy that are too small magnitude to see their effects in any other way? Yeah, and I think so. I, I think this method won't be sensitive to the actual gravitational influence of the things in our own Milky Way. But what I envision us saying eventually is that uh, we believe that galaxies exist in dark matter halos in a certain way. And therefore, if there are, if our gravitational lensing experiment detects thousands or what some number of really low mass things between the line of sight from us to the source, we could say something about the number density of these things in the universe. And then we could look at our own group and say, well, we see X number of galaxies that are gravitationally bound to the local group, things like this small segue one you're talking about, which have a thousand stars, but 
clearly have more gravity influencing their motions. We could look at those numbers of those things and compare that to the number density of things I see when I look at one of my gravitational lenses and then say, okay, well, that there is a really, really high number density of these structures and I only see a few of them in the local group, which has to mean that there are a lot of dark things that just don't have stars in them. That would be that would be really that would be revolutionary. I mean, I don't I don't toss that word around very lightly, but you know, when we when we look around at what we see, we can be sure that the things that we've observed exist. What's much <laughs> what's much yeah. harder though is to infer like what haven't we seen that exists? Like of all the things we don't see cuz we don't like even with the best observatories we have, we're not seeing most of the universe. We're not seeing most of what's out there. We see the things that our equipment is the best at detecting. So we see the biggest galaxies and the brightest galaxies. And then as we build better telescopes, we can see ones that are fainter and ones that are smaller and ones that are farther away. Um, but even with like the Hubble extreme deep field, we're still seeing less than 10% of the galaxies galaxies that we expect to be out there in the universe and that's not even getting into the ones that don't emit light and that just to clarify that's not because of the field of view it's because it's uh you know you're saying it's only 10 percent of the things that we think are actually in that area that hubble looked at right that's right, because because we know that there are fainter things. We know that there are more distant and more redshifted things. And we know that there are smaller things that we just can't see at those distances that are out there. If we were to take the Hubble Extreme Deep Field and extrapolate based on the number of galaxies we can count in this image, if we were to put that all over the whole sky, how many galaxies would we expect there are in the universe? And the answer is huge. It's 170 billion galaxies. But if you ask how many galaxies do we actually think are in the entire universe, that number is closer to 2 trillion, which is about which is about 13 times, 12 or 13 times that original number that we found. So even with Hubble at the limits of what Hubble can observe in a particular region of sky, we know there's probably more than 10 times as much stuff out there. It's just that we can see only the things that we're good at seeing. What you're giving us is a new way to see something, and it's going to reveal things that we just can't reveal otherwise, that we can't see through any other method. Exactly. Yes. Man, that seems like the kind of science that more people should be eager to pay you to be doing. Thank you, Ethan. Can I put that on my CV? I think you can. I said it and you're talking about it. It's got to be real. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think I think this is really a I think this is really a great line of research to be exploring and I'm so excited that you took the time to share it with us and our listeners here. Um, and I'd love to ask you, Anna, if I can, is what if any final message would you like everyone listening to this program to take away? Well, I'd like to thank taxpayers <laughs> for, you know, being passionate about science and supporting science. Uh, none of this would be possible if people didn't love astronomy and love space. So 
I'm just super grateful that I share that with so many people and they've chosen to support this. I, I think you do. I think you're you're also preaching in the right choir. My listeners here are pretty good fans of of using public funds to finance information about the universe itself and to increase our basic knowledge because we don't. We don't know what's going to come out of this, what we're going to learn from this unless we look. But we can guarantee that we're not going to learn anything if we don't look. Anna, thank you for joining us and sharing all that you know with us about this particular topic. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. As for me too. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in as well. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Laird WH, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnabal, Rafal Wojcik, Danny, Mike, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Gabriel Neder, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tomas Walgren, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renike, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Christoph Hip, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Dana Bridges, Kelly Cooper, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, and Philip Radulovic. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts with a Bang. Starts with a Bang.